0: Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now, let's dig deeper. Well, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and today I welcome back to the table Tim Cockrell after a busy, busy Busy. Well, yeah, three busies is enough. Uh, busy week with about 150 teenagers at camp here last week. Tim shared with our church from Exodus chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 13, verse 13. And Tim, Uh, First things first, Josh Taylor, he opened our service the other day on Sunday morning, and he shared about a great week at camp. He said that you rode the broom. Now, those are uh, foreign words to me. Mm -hmm. You rode the broom into the lake during lunch. Tell. Tell. So All this was
1: it. a, a Scioto Hills tradition that I was introduced to this week that apparently uh, by sheer will of the, the campers, they can uh, start chanting, ride the broom into the lake and then put someone's name in there. And uh, they'll they'll try to convince you that you need to jump into the lake in whatever you're wearing. Now, thankfully, I had a little bit of forewarning, so I was uh, <laughs> wearing my swim trunks. But uh, you get to go off the high dive, and, and you get to have a, a broom with you. Now, I did not literally ride the broom into the lake, but I did carry the broom with me into the lake. And... Uh, Got a, a good cheer from the, the students. So it was a lot of fun to be able to spend that week with them. And I just want to say what a blessing it was to see our leaders, our volunteers, and our students, our, our um, high school students that were working as what we call seekers, you know, junior counselors almost in many ways. And the way they connected with our students, the way our kids responded and were attentive, it was just a really sweet week together.
0: Camp. Do you have memories of camp, uh, 4-H camp maybe, or church camp from your past uh, formative years and anything that comes to your mind?
1: I sure do. So I didn't go to camp every summer. I grew up on a farm, and so a lot of times... Um, whether it was financially or just um, the busyness of being on the farm. But several years when I was younger, I went to Skyview Ranch, which is up in right. Millersburg, Ohio. Right. And one year I went to Camp Patmos, which was up on Lake Erie. And those were really formative experiences for me as a camper. I can still remember the the name of my counselor when I was probably, you know, fourth grade. Um, but then also when I, finished, when I was at Cedarville, I worked for a couple of summers at Skyview Ranch and just seeing the way that God uses those intensive discipleship experiences as one piece of the puzzle um, for those who are working there, as well as for those campers that were attending, was just a, a really encouraging thing. And so I was excited to be able to go. Really, our whole family went down to be a part of Grace's summer camp, and it was just a really sweet experience.
0: I'm thinking that was probably about 20, 22 years ago, you might have been at Skyview. And uh, I don't know, we may have crossed paths. I don't remember a little bald guy there, <laughs> but uh, you might not have been that same guy. That I had <laughs> Lately,
1: <laughs> more hair, but not much more. So. No, we,
0: we may have crossed paths at family camp. I don't know, but uh, formative times. And I can even speak to the fact of working at camp mm-hmm. back uh, about 35 years ago, uh, I got a wife out of the deal. So, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, camp can be transformative, I know. And mm-hmm. I know a number of us have had those experiences. So, well, I appreciate you sharing that. Well, We've got today, let's start with a couple of questions that have Mm -hmm. come from congregational members. We really appreciate these two in particular this week who have uh, posited questions. Uh, The first one is this, are there any clues or hints here in Exodus about how much time there may have been between each plague? It just seems like with so much devastation by some of the plagues, there would be basically nothing left for the next plague or plagues to destroy. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It was one that I began to try to explore and you know, there's certain details that we don't unpack in a sermon, but are ideal for this. and, And this is a great venue for that. Um, my best guess is that it was about a nine month period that the plagues took place. And there's a couple of Clue is Probably the clearest clue that we have in the text is when the hailstorm comes and it says the barley was destroyed because it was already sprouted, True. but the wheat was not destroyed because it was still very young. So in the Egyptian agricultural system, that would have been like early January. And we know Passover took place in, in roughly April for us. Um, then there's a few other clues even related to the Nile and some phenomenon and things that they have in the, the summertime that suggest maybe May, June it began and maybe wrapped up uh, sometime in late March or early April. We don't know for sure. But, you know, to the question of, you know, was there anything left, I think even the text tells us that, you know, for instance, the hailstorm came and destroyed most of the crops and then locusts came and destroyed even more of them. You know, the the plague of, of pestilence on the animals killed many of the animals. And those that weren't killed, others were then killed by the hailstorm. And so there's a lot of things that we don't know. But I do think the kind of rapid fire nature of it, made the devastation on top of devastation feel that much more incapacitating for the Egyptian people.
0: And in between the plagues, if I'm remembering this right, and I haven't gone back and looked at it here in the past couple of days, but isn't there a, uh, a note that after seven days on one of the plagues, I forget. That, right. So there were some perhaps in rapid succession and others maybe a little drawn out. But I I can only imagine that nine months uh, we know what you know we're in the middle of uh, maybe at least a slowdown in our economy in mm-hmm. the United States and really the world uh, nine months of this would have been devastating to any economy
1: absolutely so yeah that's the very first plague is when the Nile turned to blood it tells us that after seven days uh, it appears that that plague abated to where mm-hmm. then they had fresh water again but yeah there's a lot of pieces where you know the frogs dying for instance and being piled up and beginning to decompose there's some amount of of time that passes we just don't know for certain we just Mm. have to look a few of those little textual clues that suggest okay here's maybe a time marker in there for us good
0: good well thank you to that one who posited that question here's another one Mm -hmm. this uh congregant says I'm a little confused about a particular point in the sermon from this past Sunday. The final plague involved the destroyers killing the firstborn of every household, Egyptian or Hebrew, if they didn't have the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the doorpost and the lintel. But a couple of times Tim said that the blood protected all the members of the house. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's semantics and the entire household was being protected because of the blood, in that the firstborn of the household would not die. Is that perhaps what you're saying, or what's the... What's your thought on that?
1: Right. So, you know, we have to recognize that these would have been family units that would have been gathered. And so it may be that if you had uh, aunts and uncles or grandparents or things like that, there could have been multiple firstborns, you know, involved there. So, you know, firstborn of this cousin, firstborn of of the mom and dad. Um, So at minimum that that all the families that were there, their firstborns were protected and therefore they were also prevented from the grief that they would have experienced. But remember also the firstborn of the livestock Mm. of the families would die as well. So even if you weren't going to lose your life as the firstborn, you might be losing a significant portion of your livestock if you didn't follow through on this. And so the, the general idea is that whatever judgment was going to fall on all the people of Egypt because even we read about you know this this cry of anguish that goes up at midnight from the Egyptians and it, the text actually tells us there was not a house in the Egyptian world that was unaffected they were shielded from all of that not just the individual firstborn having their life mm-hmm. preserved
0: when you reference the Egyptians the Egyptian culture that firstborn was was uh, that was the line mm-hmm. of, of succession Similar to the Hebrews, right? I mean, yes. the, the Jewish children, they had the same thing. So if that firstborn in whom all of the the training and uh, religious training and otherwise societal mm-hmm. training, when they – if they would have died, that would have affected the whole family radically.
1: Absolutely. You know, in that culture, the firstborn was the one on whom the – hopes and even responsibilities for the future lay they didn't have a social security system you know (laughs) that was their social security system the firstborn and then the families that would would derive from that was their social security system Mm -hmm. and so yeah from a religious perspective from a uh, economic perspective and, and from a societal perspective the loss of the firstborn would not just be the loss of a child as sad as it is that was fairly common in that day. You right. know, the infant and ch- ch- child mortality rate was high, but the idea that this firstborn that was poised to take power possession of uh, the the family's possessions, the loss of that would have been a huge blow.
0: Well, this next question was not presented necessarily in the same way that the first two were by email, but it did come up in our adult Bible fellowship, mm-hmm. so I'll just mention it to you. and i've heard this question Mm i thought about it too your thoughts on it if the pharaoh's firstborn son was to be the subsequent pharaoh he was being trained to be the leader of uh, of egypt why then didn't pharaoh himself who was presumably a firstborn son we would expect why didn't he die in the plague
1: yeah it's a good question that we just we don't know the answer to for sure so there's a couple of different possibilities one he may not have been the firstborn son. You know, again, in a day and age where infant mortality was very high, he may have had an older brother that, that died at a young age or died as a, a young child. Um, it is also possible that the idea of the firstborn was meant to strike at that future generation. And so that if Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's father was no longer living, mm. that he wasn't the firstborn in the house that was struck, but rather his son was. Um, to where it specifically was striking, because we know the plagues were against the gods of Egypt, that it was striking against this hope of, hey, I have immortality in the afterlife because my son is now going to be the the descendant of of Amun-Ra, who's going to be offering these sacrifices. There's also the possibility, and I thought this was intriguing as I studied this, the text tells us that there was not a house in Egypt that was unaffected. And we have to assume there were some couples that didn't have a son or that um, you know, didn't have cattle or, or whatever that would have been directly addressed. And so there's a possibility that firstborn here is being used more as a title than mm-hmm. as a biological designation. So in other words, the one on whom the family's future depended was struck down. And and I thought that's actually helpful because we even read that Jesus was the firstborn of all Mm -hmm. creation, for instance. We, We know that he didn't have a beginning, but that that title is used to designate him as the one with preeminence. And so if we think about it in that way, I think that makes a lot of sense to say that in every household, the one who was being depended on for the future was struck down
0: um, and so that's also a possibility—the mm-hmm. the unknowns, but still interesting to mm-hmm. to work through that. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about the nature of God here, Tim. I, I'm thinking that during Jesus's final feast of unleavened bread, mm-hmm. leading up to that final Passover, that critical Passover there, late in each of the Gospels, Jesus probably didn't think, well, okay, here I am, ready to give my life for the sins of the world. Man, how cool is this? It just happens to be Passover, and and what a great picture. Let's use this. Uh, Let's talk again. I think it's good to talk about Mm -hmm. Jesus' sovereignty over circumstances. Mm -hmm. This didn't just happen late in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God, it seems to me, God prepared this so that Jesus is ready to go right at the right time.
1: Absolutely, and we see that in so many different ways. Several times during Jesus' ministry, he says, my time has not yet come. You know, but then there is a period of time where he he sets his face to Jerusalem. He says, "Now is the time." And so he arrives in Jerusalem not by accident on Palm Sunday, which would have been the time where all the Passover lambs would have been driven up into the temple to be examined by the priests, and that over the next four days they would have been kept there in the temple courts to be examined to make sure that they were spotless and without blemish. And that's exactly what we see of Jesus. That's where he spent those four days of the Passion Week was in the temple courts, taking questions and being challenged by the Pharisees. Being examined. Exactly, being examined. And, And what I think is especially fascinating is that then on Thursday night, we read that Jesus has this Passover meal with the disciples. But if we look at the calendar, and there's some discussion and debate as to how exactly to lay out the calendar of the Passion Week, it's very likely that most of the Jews were celebrating Passover on Friday night. Mm -hmm. Because you remember, the Pharisees wanted the bodies off the, the crosses so that then they could celebrate the Passover. And so that seems to suggest that Jesus intentionally celebrates the Passover a day early so that he could enact in symbol what was going to happen in reality and salvation the very next day. And so when Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, I think he is giving this meal that the Jews have been celebrating now for centuries, this new depth of relevance to what was going to happen on the cross. And, and that's one of the reasons why, as we looked at the Passover this past week, we're also
0: looking ahead mm-hmm. to what that meant for communion. Mm-hmm. And so important just to remember that uh, <clears throat> I, I think of this, uh, Jesus' sovereignty over time, mm-hmm. over circumstances, and remember that whatever I might be going through today, God has... Ordained, Mm. he knows. He knew. He knows, and he is using it for his glory.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So good. Well, you talked about memorials during our time together on Sunday, and their importance in our worship, in our daily life, in our remembering. You've mentioned the in past weeks the erection of stone Mm memorials, and we'll see some more of these as they get through uh, go through different waters, uh, in particular Jordan. I'm thinking of, but. Families can establish memorials as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably we, we would both agree that families are uh, are called even to do this. Can you give us some examples of memorials that that any family here in our congregation mm-hmm. or beyond might begin observing to help them in their everyday worship and their seeking after God? Their training up of the children after the way they should go.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the first thing that comes to my <laughs> mind is not wood and stone type memorials, but you know, in the Bible, many of the memorials were feasts in which they would rehearse God's salvation and rehearse God's goodness to them. And so there's a few uh, holidays, if you will, in our calendar that we as parents, I think, can uniquely leverage in pointing our children to biblical truth and God's salvation. Um, you know, obviously Christmas and Easter come to mind there, but not just the holiday itself, but even the time leading up to it, you know, so with Christmas, we have the time of Advent with Easter, um, whether you want to call it Lent or, or whatever else, uh, a period of time of preparation, of reflection, um, reading the scriptures, reminding our kids, here's why it's important that Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem. Here's why the resurrection is so central to our faith. You know, the the idea of children asking questions mm. and even just hands-on type experiences, are so helpful to reinforce in their minds the significance of it. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. You know, if it's Advent, there's lots of creative things of, of whether it's acting out the bible story that's something that our family will do and uh, have the kids play different parts and and not give them a script like see how much of the story they have internalized and it's surprising sometimes what they remember it's also surprising sometimes what they insert into the story that i'm pretty (laughs) sure was not in there originally
0: those are teaching moments those are
1: great teaching moments for sure um and then even with easter you know thinking through uh, we do a couple of different activities of, of you know, writing our, our sins on stones and, and putting them there in, in a basket, and then yeah. on Easter morning, those, those are taken away and. Um, you know, just just different hands-on activities that our, our kids remember. You know, even something like Thanksgiving, although that's not a, an explicitly biblical holiday, I think it's a very biblical principle mm-hmm. to teach our children the importance of regularly giving thanks. So certain rhythms in the calendar, I think, lend themselves to memorials. But I also think one of the habits that we often will do as a family is toward the end of a calendar year, at the very beginning of a new year, just kind of reflect on the past year. What's happened? You know, this past year, it was a lot of things that happened for us as we saw <laughs> transitions. Happening. But we also are trying to be intentional and say look at how God's provided for us. Look at mm-hmm. you know the ways he's answered certain prayers. And we ask our kids those questions so that we're hearing it from their perspective because sometimes there's things that we've even forgotten about, but there were little moments of of God's faithfulness that still remain in their mind. You know, one discipline that I think is a really good one that I'll be honest our family has not done as well as I wish that we Would, but many families that we've known will write out prayer requests like on index cards or something like that and keep it at their dinner table or or where they do family devotions. And then as they see God answer those prayers, they write down the answers to those prayers so they have some physical, tangible reminders. Other people will do um, prayer journals and things like that. I think there's a variety of different ways to do it, there's not just one kind of uniform Mm -hmm. way, but the whole point is. We are forgetful people. And the more we celebrate God's faithfulness in the past, the more it fuels our faith for him in the future. We're going to see that even this week as we look at um, the parting of the Red Sea. You know, how many times in the Old Testament do they go back to that Red Sea moment to say, therefore, we will trust God and His faithfulness. I think that's our ultimate goal as families: is to have memorials
0: of God's faithfulness to fuel our faith and the faith of our children. As I hear you talking about that latter, that latter idea of using circumstances that God has brought us through to mark mm-hmm. uh, God's faithfulness and to go back over those stories. I introduced you just earlier this morning to Mm -hmm. a dear friend of mine with whom I've been meeting, I don't know, for the past 8 to 10 years. Mm -hmm. Every Wednesday morning we meet. uh, And he was recounting to me a time from 27 years ago right now where God had placed in his hands an asset that he was able to basically hawk to pay the first mortgage payment on a business. Hmm. And I said, you know, you really need to sit down with your son who is in video or audio production and record that story for your grandchildren mm-hmm. and beyond to mark God's faithfulness. How did God bring you from something you were handed an asset another asset that you that was dead that mm. you were trying to revive as a business, and this is how God met your needs. Mm-hmm. Having those marks are just so important. I, I really appreciate you mentioning that. Well, I also appreciated your your emphasis this past week on the I'll call it the solemnity of, of mm-hmm. the communion celebration during our worship services. We we talked here in the past. We talked here in the past several months about why we do it twice a month. Now we used to do it once, mm-hmm. and and I think it's good. It just is a continued. I don't want to say beating into our minds, but I think it's appropriate beating mm. into our minds mm-hmm. of uh, God's faithfulness to us. But can you give us some some inside skinny on practices that you employ personally to prepare yourself for the communion celebration? We talked how it is the logical conclusion of the Passover, mm-hmm. conclusion Passover speaks to the giving, Jesus' giving of his life and blood. What do you do as you're coming to the table?
1: Right. That's a good question that you know, to be honest, as I think about it, I'm sure there's there's more intentionality that I could have in that. One of the benefits that I have as the person preaching <laughs> is I get to be preparing for that all week. Like right. I know, hey, this is a, a communion week. And I think for any of us in the Christian life, the goal is that we are preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, yeah. that we are reminding ourselves of that and reinforcing it. And yet, as we've just described, we're, we're forgetful people. We're prone to let our minds wander or get caught up in the daily... Realities of things. And so, because we're doing communion every other week, one of my goals is, regardless of what I'm preaching, I'm thinking through how does this tie into the gospel? How does this reinforce gospel principles? And my prayer as a pastor is that I'm always applying that then to myself first. And so there are many ways in which we see different angles of communion. So uh, a number of months ago, we were looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and asking, you know, Father, allow this cup to pass from me. And that cup, as we studied it, I believe... Is the cup of God's wrath that was poured out on Jesus rather than on ourselves, and so when I come to take communion, that that has meaning for me. Of, of right. this is the cup that Christ drank, so that I didn't have to. As we study communion, we think about the death of the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, uh, in our place, the, the the body given and the blood shed have great significance. Even as we think about the unleavened bread that we talked about and the, the purity and sanctification, if you will, that is to be marking our lives, there's just such richness there that I have um, a desire to constantly be reinforcing and understanding, hey, here's how this applies to my marriage, my my children, my own personal purity in my walk with the Lord. And and I think God is faithful to to bring those opportunities to reflect how faithful i am to really go deep on those i think uh that maybe isn't as much as i'd like it to be but it's a good discipline and a good pattern for us to be in
0: i'm thinking of psalm one how blessed is a man who does not walk in the counseling mm-hmm. god they stand in the path of sinners sit in the mm-hmm. seat of scoffers in but the, his delight is the law of the lord and his yes. law he meditates day and night mm-hmm. um mm-hmm doing that and reminding ourselves, as you say, the gospel Mm -hmm. and how much we need. Great. Tim, there are a number of things that we get to here at the end of chapter, th- or the end of our passage there mm-hmm. as we approach verse 13 and chapter 13 that kind of almost seem like throw-ins, one of which is the whole idea of the giving of the firstborn, the first fruits mm-hmm. of our crops, of our, uh, but here it specifically talks about our children, mm-hmm. our cattle, and so forth. Now, you and I don't have cattle right now. You and I have had cattle, mm-hmm. one of the few in our congregation. But anyway. <laughs> It's interesting, as I look at that, and I was preparing for our, for our time together this past Sunday in our uh, adult Bible fellowship, there seems to be an idea here where we've, we've got the God talking about giving to the first fruits. He's preparing them. Seems to be reminding them that, hey, you are stewards, not owners. Mm-hmm. And as you're, and this is kind of, this is the birthing of a nation, really, mm-hmm. right? It seems to me that he's trying to set them up to remember for time immemorial I own all this. Mm-hmm. You can practice the, this giving of the first fruits. Can you talk a little bit about that first fruits and especially its place here as they're just getting ready to leave Egypt? Right. So, you know, specifically related to the
1: firstborn son, I mean, it's also mm-hmm. true of firstborn animals. But I think there's a clear connection here that they are bringing their minds back over and over again to the firstborn in Egypt died. Hmm. But the firstborn in Israel lived because the payment of a price preserved that firstborn's life. And so I do believe that there is a principle there. You, You imagine just this young Hebrew family, if you will. They give birth to a son, which in that culture was a really big deal. But then there's this sober ceremony in which they bring that son to the temple and they recognize he deserves to die. He is a sinner, even though he may just be days old there. He is a sinner before a holy God, and that his life is forfeit because of that sin, but that God in his grace has made provision that our firstborn might live through the payment of a cost. And I think that does several things for parents. One, it's a reminder, this child is not my own. He has been entrusted to me by the Lord. And secondly, it reminds them of the orientation or the purpose of that child's life is to serve the Lord. Like as much as they might want him to be successful financially or to provide for them in their social security in in the later years, ultimately his goal, that firstborn son's goal is to serve the Lord, to be a steward of of that opportunity the Lord has given them. And so I think, you know, this Sunday on Father's Day, we're going to be having a family come and dedicating their child and I think that's just a good posture for all of us to be in, beginning with our children. These children are not our own. They've been trusted to us by the Lord for his purposes. But then, as you've said, all that we have belongs to the Lord. You know, in their day, it was cattle and, and mm-hmm. sheep and goats. For us, in, you know, maybe your 401k or your retirement or your business, but that we are not the owners, we are the stewards, and that we are ultimately going to be accountable because that stewardship is temporary. Someday the master will return, if we want to use that parable language, and that we will give an account for how we have used his resources to serve his purposes. And so I think that is a part of that um, mentality that God has provided a way for us to have these resources through the payment of a price. And when we think about our salvation, the price is at the cost of the life of his own son. And that should amaze us, that should humble us, and ought to compel us out of a heart of love to live for Him with exclusivity.
0: And setting the stage for what they need to be doing. Again, time immemorial. Absolutely. Even today, we're called to that. Mm-hmm. Act as stewards, not as owners. God owns it all. Great. Next next week, we're going to be in the latter part of chapter 13 through... The v- end chapter. of 14. Okay, mm-hmm. very good. Can you give us just a little bit of a taste? Absolutely. So you know, this is
1: arguably one of the best-known stories in the Old Testament as God brings the Israelites out of Egypt and to the Red Sea. And it's really fascinating when we look at the end of verse th- or chapter 13 God does not send them on the main highway, if you will. He sends them in the opposite direction of what you would expect. He sends them into the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And he actually has them backtrack a little bit. So they go down basically a geographical cul-de-sac, which from a military perspective was disaster (laughs) because God allows Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. Once again, Pharaoh's pursuing what he ultimately wants to pursue, and that is rebellion against God and the enslavement of the Hebrews. And so he pursues them with these 600 chariots. And I believe what God is doing here, and we'll talk more about this on Sunday, he, he doesn't let them go directly to the land of promise yet because they're not ready physically. They're not ready spiritually to go and do battle the way they would need to. And so he is going to teach them dependence. He's going to display his glory through the salvation of Israel and through the judgment of Egypt. And so the people are fearful. They are crying out, you know, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt where there are no graves in Egypt, which is ironic because, of course, there's graves everywhere as we look at the pyramids. And Moses has just this beautiful verse in in verse 13 of of chapter 14. He says, stand still and watch the Lord's salvation. There's just so many beautiful parallels to the salvation we ourselves have experienced in God's gracious initiative and his complete provision. And then he brings them through the Red Sea and, and he judges the Egyptians through bringing the sea back together. And so there's just so many different beautiful parallels to the salvation we've experienced. And so we're going to unpack as many of those as we can. But ultimately, we want to just point to God's glory, his power that's revealed in that, and and
0: worship as a result verses 13 and 14 in chapter mm-hmm. 14 uh, two verses I committed to memory many years ago mm-hmm. and that comes back to me regularly yes fear not stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will show to you today mm-hmm. amen great Tim uh you and I won't be here next week we'll have another host I'm going to, I'm going back out to your former stomping grounds out in the Great Northeast to visit a son and uh, we'll have another host and another guest here but thanks so much for joining us today thank you. Well, I've been joined by Tim Cockrell for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Exodus chapters 11 through 13, and you can access that message on demand through YouTube. You can also access each podcast episode by using your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecederville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking Podcast on the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments like a couple did today. You can share those with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecederville.org. That's contact at gracecederville.org. And plan to join us next week. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word in the last section of Exodus chapter 13 through the end of chapter 14. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecederville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.